This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Amrita Bharat, the head of mycology and molecular enteric antimicrobial resistance at the National Microbiology Laboratory in Canada. We'll be discussing a genomic analysis of extended spectrum beta-lactamase producing Salmonella enterica. Welcome, Dr. Barat. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The title of your article is One Health Genomic Analysis of Extended Spectrum Beta-Lactamase Producing Salmonella Enterica, Canada, 2012 through 2016. Let's dissect that to the start. What is One Health? So One Health is a framework that we use for doing research studies or for implementing programs. And it's a framework where we recognize that the health of people is often very closely connected to the health of animals and the environments that both of us live in. So as an example, if we were applying the One Health framework to studying infectious diseases, we would often be looking for an animal source or an environmental source of a germ that's causing illness in people. And what is involved in a One Health genomic analysis, generally speaking? For the genomic analysis part, we're using a method called whole genome sequencing that gives us a sort of DNA fingerprint for a biological sample. And it's a very high-resolution fingerprint. So in a One Health genomic analysis, we're comparing these DNA fingerprints across different sources, for example, animal sources and people. And we're looking for similarities across the sources. And if we find these similarities, this implies that there might be potential transmission of that microbe, for example, from animals to people. And that leads us to extended spectrum beta-lactamases. What are they? Extended spectrum beta-lactamases, or we call them ESBLs for short, it's a group of enzymes that can break down cephalosporin antimicrobials. This is an important class of antimicrobials. And if a bacteria has ESBL enzymes, then we say it's resistant to cephalosporin, which would mean that that drug would no longer be effective for treatment. And how does Salmonella enterica produce these ESBLs? One of the most common ways that bacteria acquire antimicrobial resistance is by taking up circular pieces of DNA from the environment. They often get these from other bacteria, and these circular pieces of DNA are called plasmids. And so if that plasmid has a gene for an ESBL, then it would make the ESBL enzyme, and that's how they produce it. So there's different types of ESBL enzymes, and the most common ones are called CTX or SHV, and we have variants of these. Are there different kinds of salmonella? Your article talks about non-typhoidal salmonella. Yes, there's lots of kinds. So there's about 2,500 different kinds or serotypes of salmonella, but of these 2,500, only about 100 serotypes commonly cause illness in people. We divide these into typhoidal and non-typhoidal salmonella. The typhoidal serotypes tend to cause more serious illnesses like typhoid fever, hence the name, and they're only found in people. The non-typhoidal salmonella um, are all the other kinds, and they are found in both people and animals. 
How common is non-typhoidal salmonella globally? It's estimated that there's about 150 million cases of salmonella infections with non-typhoidal salmonella, and this is around the world each year. Most of these are gastrointestinal illness, like what we would call food poisoning, and they resolve on their own. But sometimes they can become invasive and cause more serious infections like bloodstream infections, and about half a million of these cases would become invasive. We also estimate that about 59,000 people die each year around the world from salmonella infections. Are there other more common forms of enterobacterials than salmonella? So E. coli is probably the enterobacterialis that most people have heard of. If we're just looking at the enterobacterialis that carry ESBLs, then E. coli and Klebsiella pneumoniae are the most common types. But if we're looking at the enterobacterialis that cause foodborne illness in general, then salmonella is the most common type. And earlier you mentioned cephalosporins. Um, How do they fit into this picture? Antimicrobials are categorized into a few different categories. One of these categories is cephalosporins, and it's considered to be a very important category for human medicine, including for the treatment of serious salmonella infections. The newer generations of cephalosporins, which we call third generation and fourth generation, they're even more valued. And they're referred to as extended-spectrum cephalosporins because they are able to treat a wider spectrum of bacterial infections. What's a common name for a cephalosporin? Is, is that like Cipro? Is that one? The most common ones would be like Ceftriaxel and Erzsepteofer. And why did you choose 2012 to 2016 to do the study? In 2012, we started to become concerned about the emergence of ESBLs in Canada. And around this time, whole genome sequencing became more accessible and affordable, so we were able to make this a genomic study. By 2016, we had five years of data, and we had tested more than 30,000 salmonella samples. So we felt like we had a large enough data set to analyze the trends and draw some meaningful conclusions. What specifically were you looking for? We were looking for a couple of things. First of all, we wanted to know how common ESBLs were in people and in the food chain in salmonella. And we wanted to know whether the food chain might be contributing to infections in people with ESBL salmonella. And how did you go about finding these things? So in Canada, we have a One Health surveillance program called CPARS which stands for the Canadian Integrated Program for Antimicrobial Resistance Surveillance. CPARS collects samples from people as well as food animals from farms and abattoirs, sick animals through veterinary samples, and different kinds of meat from retail stores. We screened more than 15,000 samples of salmonella from people and about 15,000 samples of salmonella from food and animals. And we found the ones that carried ESBL genes. And for these, we did the DNA sequencing. We then looked at how closely related the ESBL salmonella were from these different sources, looking at the chromosome as well as plasmids. Putting all this together, what were you able to find? 
So out of the 30,000 samples that we screened, we only found 95 that carried ESBL. So this is a low proportion of ESBL salmonella of about 0.3%. And this proportion was similar in people and the food chain. In general, the types of ESBL salmonella were different between the sources, except for a couple of examples. So, for example, we found two samples of a type of salmonella called Heidelberg, two samples from people, and one from chicken thigh. And these were almost identical, and they carried similar plasmids with similar ESBL genes. But out of the 95 samples, only a small handful were similar between the sources. So, our conclusion was that the food chain seems to be a minor reservoir of ESBL salmonella, at least in Canada during this specific study period. Are there differences in what you found between Canada and other countries, do you think? Yes, yeah, so there's one very important difference. There's a strain of ESBL salmonella that's now commonly detected in people and in poultry in the United States and other countries. It's called Salmonella infantis that carries CTXM65. And this strain was starting to emerge in food animals in the U.S. and other countries during this study period, but we only detected it in people in Canada at that time. So it seems that the emergence of Salmonella infantis with CTXM65 was delayed in the food chain in Canada. Was this a surprise? Were there any other surprises? So this was a surprise. It was, you know, we checked and the strain is highly similar that we found in Canada. The use of cephalosporin in the agri-food industry has been eliminated over the last few years. So preventative use of antimicrobials that are the most important to human medicine is being phased out. Another surprise was that in the CPARS program, pets are not routinely part of the program, but we did have 22 samples from a special project. But out of this tiny pool of 22 samples, we were not necessarily expecting to find any ESBL. We did find one in a sample from a domestic cat and the plasmid in the sample was similar to a plasmid from a person. Again, that wasn't a total surprise because we knew that from other studies, pets tend to carry ESBLs at a higher rate than other food animals. And this might be because cephalosporins are used more often to treat infections in pets compared to the food industry. What kinds of challenges are involved in a study like yours? So if we find similar strains in the food chain and in people, we say that there's potential transmission between the food chain and people. We can't say with 100% certainty what direction this transmission happened in. So antimicrobial resistance can be transferred to people from the food we eat, but it can also be transferred from people to the food chain through things like food handling or interactions with animals on farms. So it's a bit of circumstantial evidence. We can do more advanced modeling to get more information about the potential direction of transfer. But for this study, we say potential transmission between the food chain and people. What does what you found mean for public health? So I think our study suggested that some of the 
infections in people with ESBL salmonella might come from the food chain, but some of it might be caused from our own use of cephalosporin antimicrobials that's causing resistant strains to arise and circulate between people. So studies like ours contribute to a body of evidence that supports ongoing efforts in antimicrobial stewardship. So this means using antimicrobials responsibly so that we can preserve their effectiveness and this applies to their use in animal health as well as human medicine. Are there any follow-up studies you recommend? Our study period was 2012 to 2016 for this study. We are doing a follow-up of 2017 to 2021, so the last five years of data, and it'll be interesting to see how things have changed. Risk assessment studies would also be valuable, so more quantifiable data on the potential risk that ESBLs might pose at different stages of the food production cycle. How did you become involved in this study? When I started in my current role, part of my responsibility was helping with research and surveillance within the CPERS program. Before that, during my postdoctoral fellowship, I was doing genomic studies of other bacteria like C. difficile and Neisseria gonorrhea. So I was excited to apply those skills to this new challenge of ESBL salmonella, which at the time that was the most concerning issue we had in terms of resistance in salmonella. Who were some of your partners in the study? So within that One Health program, CPARS, we have a team of epidemiologists who run the program and who we work with closely. We have the 10 provincial public health labs in Canada who provide samples and expertise. And there's also farms and veterinarians across Canada who participate voluntarily in the program. At the National Microbiology Lab, we also have excellent genomics and bioinformatics departments who provide us with support. On that note, tell us about your job. So I'm at the National Microbiology Lab, which is Canada's equivalent of the CDC. And this is within the Public Health Agency of Canada. The NML is located in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in the center of Canada. And it's a place that's known for being very cold, but Manitoba also has really nice natural beauty like lakes and good hiking. I'm head of a unit called Mycology and Molecular Enteric Antimicrobial Resistance. So the mycology part of that refers to the study of fungal pathogens. And I'm doing national surveillance of a fungal pathogen called Candida auris which is causing a lot of public health concern. And for the enteric antimicrobial resistance, I help to manage the CPARS program and another One Health program called FoodNet Canada. And the focus there is on antimicrobial resistance. So I find my job in public service and infectious diseases to be extremely rewarding. There's always something to respond to. There's never a dull moment. And I'm very grateful to be working alongside other public health experts and clinicians on issues that are important and that feel important. So it's been really great the last few years. The United States CDC has a food net also. Do they talk to each other? Yes. So the food net programs communicate and work together. And the samples that are within the CPARS program, so we're interested in antimicrobial resistance, but these samples are also part of PulseNet Canada, which is part of PulseNet International and works closely with the CDC's PulseNet program. 
Well, back to you for a second. What do you think is the most interesting thing you've ever worked on in your career? I think it's an exciting time to be a microbiologist. Whole genome sequencing is really transforming the field of infectious diseases. Recently, I've been working on developing methods for being able to detect antimicrobial resistance directly from DNA sequences. So traditionally, we would go up the bacteria in a broth that has drugs of different concentrations, and we're looking for what kills the bacteria, um, and that's how we determine what it's resistant to. With this new genetic method, hopefully, we can get to a place where we can get the resistance information faster and be able to get this information to clinicians sooner to help them make treatment decisions. This genetic method also has other advantages like telling us not just that the bacteria is resistant, but what the gene or mutation that's causing the resistance. This allows us to do our surveillance more precisely. In terms of being able to use it for clinical diagnosis, we're not there yet, but it's a future that we're working towards, and it's very exciting. It sounds exciting. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Barat. Thanks for having me. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the July 2022 article, One Health Genomic Analysis of Extended Spectrum Beta-Lactamase-Producing Salmonella Enterica Canada, 2012 through 2016, online at cdc.gov eid. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO. 